This is going to be a panel this morning. Uh, I want to introduce the panel members. First is uh, Charles Vitto. Yeah, Vitto. Vitto, okay. I, I knew I was going to kill that. I, I apologize, Charlie. Anyway, Charlie is a dentist. He actually goes to this church, is my understanding. And he actually uses health education to train lay people. And so he'll talk about that. Dr. Chris Jenkins is from In His Image. And Chris spends about somewhere four months plus or minus a year in Central Asia, China, and working with family medicine training programs. And uh, Dr. Bruce Steffes on the end is the CEO for the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. Uh, and uh, that's where we train uh, Africans in mission hospitals in a surgery training program. And then I'm involved with Medical Education International. Uh, and each one of us will take about five minutes to explain to you what we do. And... Uh, and what, what, we're, what we've been involved with, and then we'll have time for hopefully at least 15 to 20 minutes for questions and answers. Depends on how long each of us take. So I was going to go last, but since I'm the only one that's using a uh, PowerPoint, uh, and Charlie said, well, why don't you go first so I know what you have in mind. So I'm going to go first. So, Medical Education International is part of the Christian Medical Dental Association. Our mission is to send teams of graduate physicians and dentists overseas to train, teach, and mentor other medical personnel. And I need to expand that, and I'll explain that later, more than just medical and dental. Our purpose is to develop relationships with our overseas colleagues in a way that leads them to a relationship with Jesus Christ and improves the health care of their people. And our vision is to see international Christian doctors winning their own people to Christ. And I think we've heard that over and over in this conference, that the nationals, because they know the language and the culture, are going to be a lot better at, at reaching their own people than we are. And so just to give you a, just a flavor of some of the things that we've done with MEI, <coughs> Mongolia is sort of our flagship project. We do teams twice a year there, and we've been doing that for about 14 years now. It has taken a variety of different things. Lectures, hands-on training, uh, student teaching, consultations in the hospital, uh, hospice. And they actually have asked us to help them with doing some research projects, particularly the people who would be what we would call residents have to do a research project because they get a master's degree, and they've asked for help with that. And then we've been involved with, over the years, starting a Christian local Christian medical fellowship, which has been very rewarding. Kazakhstan's a little different country, and I've been there about five times now. And the first time I went was with Chris Jenkins in 2004, and we were working with medical students. I wasn't involved in the next three teams, but the people who went with MEI were really kind of discouraged. Then nothing much came of it. But then there, we had a contact with the rector of a medical school, which is actually like a dean here, who had a real vision for improving both residency and edu medical education. And we were asked to come and do a week's workshop on residency training. And following that, they, they asked us to come and do a workshop on how to write multiple choice questions. Now, what an odd mission trip that is. Uh, <laughs> But what was interesting about it was that when I first started in ENT about 35 years ago, 
I was asked to help write questions for our in-service training exam and our board exams. And so I had had training on how to write multiple choice questions. One of the other people on the committee worked for, uh, had, had worked with the family medicine boards and he knew how to evaluate them for validity and do the, that type of thing. And so we put together this week's workshop and they liked it so well they invited us back again in June of this last year. In Kenya, we have partnered with the local uh, Christian Medical Fellowship in doing things like ACLS, ATLS training. We did that for five years. One of the people who went on our teams actually went there full time. And over a period of five years, they, we did trainer of trainers, and they now do their own courses and feel that they've trained over a thousand people in either ACLS or ATLS. A year ago, I did a pediatric neurodevelopment team where we talked about cerebral palsy, developmental delay, and autism. And we did that again this year. And so uh, we followed up. And then also in October this year, we worked with the Christian Medical Fellowship and the local oncology society to put on an oncology conference. So one of the people on our team, uh, <laughs> somebody right? Uh, one of the uh, people on our team asked Dr. Mahudia, who was our host, how he saw short-term missions. And this is what he came up with. He says, for them to be successful in our eyes, that's the Kenyans' eyes, they need to include training education, transfer of skills, and you need to do repeat trips and try to turn it over, do trainers of trainers. And he says it takes at least three consecutive visits to be able to be successful. So those are just his thoughts, and I think they were very good guidelines. So what did we learn in Kenya? First of all, we've got to realize it's not all about us. We need to ask our host what they perceive as their need, not what we perceive as their need. Very early on, uh, particularly if you're transferring skills, start to get them involved. In Kazakhstan, what we did in June, we had the Kazakhs, we had nine people who had been uh, trained, went with, uh, were, took the workshop in October. In June, nine of them gave all of our lectures. We gave no lectures. We were there for support and then in, in questions and answers and things. And they could then go ahead and do it themselves. The other thing is, uh, you know, we have to realize that they may want to take over and run things. And I learned that in spades when I did the oncology conference. Dr. Muhudi and I had great plans of what we wanted to do. And when he got the oncology society involved, they changed them completely. And it was very hard for me to relinquish that control. But when I wrote my report afterwards, I, th I thought to myself, you know, this turned out to be an international oncology conference put on by Africans with some American speakers, not an American conference for the Africans. And so I th it was hard, but I think it was good. Uh, how do we know if we're doing any good? Changes are going to be small. Uh, it may be frustrating. Uh, sometimes it doesn't seem very tangible. You're not going to be able to come home like with some, uh, you know, when you do primary care where you've been able to pray with a lot of people uh, and see a lot of people come to Christ. Uh, but I think we have to leave the results with the Lord and sometimes somebody else is going to do the reaping rather than ourselves. But I think we have the possibility of influencing the next generation of doctors, both medically and spiritually. And, as I said earlier, the national physicians are frequently going to be able to reach their own people better than we are. From Scripture, 
You can learn the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest. And I think with that, we can have a dawn of a new day in medical missions. So that's a picture of Mount Rainier. Okay, Charlie. Thank you. Um, oh, wait a minute. You need this stuff. There we go. Thank you. We actually, as a dentist, uh, I sold my practice uh, about three years ago, and it's about a half a mile from here. This is my home church, and uh, about a year half ago, I became missions director, international missions director here at Southeast. So, my, my passion is really those 2.7 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus or have little access to the gospel. And so when you take, if you had a map of the world and you showed <clears throat> where those are, those people that live in that area also have almost little or no access to dental care. So, and they're dying and suffering and like crazy, physically and spiritually. So, what if we could train these guys how to give a shot and how to take out an abscess tooth. And so that that's kind of where I am. And then then uh, we can um, preach and heal. Did you, who, who did not hear King um, Thursday night? If you didn't hear him, raise your hand. Okay. Wow. That's great. So actually King is where we started uh, seven years ago. Northern Ghana, one dentist for two million people, heavily Muslim area, and he, uh, we trained he, King and three other guys on how to give a shot and take a tooth out. And so you've heard the fruit of what, what's taking place. So how are we going to get to Molly? How are we going to get to Chad? We don't have enough physicians and dentists to do that. We have to transfer our skills. And that's what Dr. I'll call him Dr. Steve. It's Dr. Mawadi? Mahudia. Great guy. And uh, so... Uh, we worked with him in, in Kenya in transferring skills. So we're not going to transfer oncology or you know, general surgery, but we can transfer dental skills. And so um, then that will be part of getting the, the great, great commission completed, and then Jesus comes back. So it's that simple. Let's go do it. <laughs> so that's it. Next. So transfer the... Transfer the mic. Transfer the mic and the concept and everything else. Yeah. Let's see, which is the mic and the, is this? Uh, hello? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> I guess this one doesn't, does this, does this work? Oh, okay, so I do need that up there, okay. <laughs> All right, now I'm kind of organized. I'm Chris Jenkins, and I'm a faculty member uh, with In His Image, Inc., which is a family medicine residency training program in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, fans back here. <laughs> um, we uh, were incorporated as a nonprofit religious organization as opposed to an educational program, which has enabled us to do uh, all kinds of Christian ministries, both domestically and internationally. And out of our original organization, the Family Medicine Training Program, we've uh, started In His Image International, which is our formal overseas uh, face and uh, structure through which we do both short and long-term missions, disaster relief, and a number of other things. Um, 
we are medical educators, and uh, that's what we do overseas. We do it in the States. We train uh, medical school graduates to be family medicine doctors. And uh, for those of you who are thinking family medicine, there's a great need for family medicine education around the world. Many countries that have come out of the um, uh, Soviet Union era or are in the Chinese uh, uh, circle of influence are specialty-based, and that also means there's, special, there's plenty of room for specialists to go and do medical education too, of course. But they have only recently started training family medicine doctors at the graduate level, postgraduate level. And there's a tremendous need for people to come alongside and help them do that. Uh, many of those countries are still trying to figure out what family medicine is and how it fits into the system and uh, uh, how they're going to uh, uh, train them and what the model is they're going to use. So we have found, uh, it's God's timing, here we are, Dr. John Crouch over here is one of the founders of, of, in his image, uh, I think 1989 formally is under that name, uh, that God has prepared our group and groups like us for a time such a time as this. Uh, we're family medicine, we're Christians, and uh, uh, following the lead of the World Health Organization, which in 1978 in Almaty gave an Alma-Ata declaration saying basically all peoples of the world ought to have primary care uh, givers, caregivers. And uh, most of these countries have bought into that and have been trying, uh, at least since the early 90s, to... Uh, include that in their systems. And that's given us a tremendous door to go through to offer our services to help them, to help those in those countries who are responsible for that to figure out what they're doing and help them do it, uh, just come alongside as consultants. So in medical education, there's a full spectrum uh, in what we're involved with, involved in everything from short-term missions to the actual residency programs. We have six residencies that we're involved with, three in China, one in Kazakhstan, one in Egypt, and one in Afghanistan. They're all very different. You can imagine the environments that they're in are completely different from one another, and yet they're all trying to do the same thing. Uh, train local doctors to give good primary care and to reach them and disciple them so they can make medicine min a ministry for themselves. These are, with the exception of Afghanistan, Christian residents that we're training. And in Afghanistan, we're trying to help them become Christians just by living with them and working with them and uh, helping, letting them see our lives. It's a difficult situation there to be open with your faith. So... Uh, we have found, uh, you know, starting way back in, well, way back, 1995, uh, with our, our uh, conferences, uh, it depends, as far as what is success in it, it depends on what stage of the process you're in. We have about 35 of our alumni who are in full-time missions right now. A lot of them are in the 1040 window. But initially, we didn't. And so when we started going to these countries, and Kazakhstan was the first we went to, and Russia, uh, we didn't know any long-term medical missionaries, or maybe there were one or two here and there, but they were doing various things. So we would go to the medical schools and uh, hospitals and uh, ministries of health who would ask us for our help. And we'd go in and teach general medical topics and give an overview of family medicine is, the philosophy of it, the concept, how it, how it works, and uh, try to encourage those who are now being forced to go into family medicine because the government said, okay, we're going to do it and you're going to be it. <laughs> you're going to teach it. You're, yeah, you were, you were trained as a pulmonologist or a surgeon, but now you're the head of the GP department and uh, like it or lump it. And so we would go in and try to explain what it is and why it is a worthwhile uh, profession and, and valuable for the health of the community. So every, everywhere from that end all the way up to actually doing the residency training in those six programs that I mentioned, and we hope to have more in the future as we go. So success in the early stages would be measured by opening doors and developing relationships. We also found that it was a way to identify Christians. We would give our seminars. We'd give optional spiritual seminars after the medical part was over, and people would come up, oh, you're a Christian. I am too. And someone would say that, and over here, you're a Christian. I didn't know you were a Christian. They would get together, and we were involved in helping start Christian medical fellowships uh, 
from the very beginning in Central Asia, and uh, they've uh, gone on to form what they call the Union of Central Asian Christian Medical Fellowships. It's a self-run thing, and, and all the Central Asian uh, republics are, are involved in it, uh, except for Turkmenistan. So that was success for us then, and and, uh, and I agree with Jim uh, that one of the and, and the fellow he mentioned in the uh, in the Kenya slide. A real key to success in short-term missions is continuity and going back over and over again. And although we may go to a particular city once or twice a year with a short-term team, doing that for 15 years, or even, you know, you don't have to do 15 years, but for several years in a row really makes a difference as opposed to going one time and giving a few lectures or doing a clinic or whatever and then never seeing them again. We found that it has made a tremendous difference in our work in these countries to go back over and over again. Now, with our, our residency programs, uh, we're, the focus is much more on helping them be successful. They are training the local people uh, to, to do family medicine, and they, are also, they have been examples or models of family medicine training to the countries that they're working in. And uh, uh, So we would go and do consultations for our graduates who are now program directors or faculty members, help them uh, improve and build up their programs and help them deal with the issues that rise up as they go through the process of teaching. Uh, we also have been involved in the spiritual, I mentioned the Christians, but we've also been involved in evangelistic outreach, anywhere from the one-day seminars I mentioned to week-long evangelistic camps in Central Asia, uh, to retreats for Christians, anywhere from a weekend to a week-long. Uh, and in countries where you can't do that, having um, marriage and family seminars or medical ethics seminars that lead to discussions about faith, because they'll ask you, well, why do you do that? And China, you can answer any way you want. You can't initiate the question, but you can answer the question any way you want. So uh, in most of the places we go, we found it very fruitful as a discipleship tool, as an outreach tool for the local doctors and us as well, and, um, uh, uh, just, just, and, and medically uh, fruitful as well in helping transfer these concepts and skills and knowledge to help them do well in their own country. Um, so, yeah, if, if you can plug in with a long-termer with a short-term team, that's, I think, probably the most effective way. But if your goals are to open up a door, you know, just getting in, making the relationships, paving the way for the long-term teams to come in, that's success, too. Um, I think that's it, Jim. I'm Bruce Steffes. I'm the, uh, heading up the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, which is a commission of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Our goal is to use African uh, mission hospitals to train African physicians to be African surgeons. And uh, in doing so, uh, obviously, we're increasing the competency of the country, and, and they will stay there for a lifetime. Uh, they have um, much fewer in the way of cultural issues and know the languages and so forth. Uh, what we are doing is using uh, six different mission hospitals at the present time and have training programs. Over all of them, presently, we have 40 surgical residents. And uh, as you know, there's a constant debate, and as you've been at this conference, there's a lot of political correctness in missions about it should all be done this way or it should all be done that way. Uh, and the answer is it varies from country to country and from need to need. Uh, in Africa, uh, still in some countries, as much as 60% of all the health care is given by mission uh, agencies and mission hospitals. So there's still a tremendous need in certain parts. Um, what we do works well in Africa. It won't work in Asia very well because of, again, different politics and, and uh, various restrictions. Um, what we do uh, is we'll have a program with uh, missionary surgeons that are out under their own agencies, um, and they will be the program directors. 
and then we use short-term faculty that come in. Uh, in the United States, of course, general surgery is relatively limited. Uh, we, we talk about being skin in its contents, but it's not. In Africa, it is. Uh, a general surgeon is going to have to do virtually everything. If Kenya... Uh, excuse me, if Kentucky was in rural Africa, there would be exactly two surgeons, okay? And that would be it. And so we feel that God has called us to increase the uh, higher end level of, of training. And, of course, there's a lot of debate about whether or not you should do task shifting and all those other issues. That is not what God has called us to do. Um, but we're having an amazing impact uh, on an international level in terms of the agencies, uh, the colleges of surgery, and what's happening. Some of our graduates are being asked to join the ministries of health and all these sorts of things. Uh, we train them not only in medicine, but we spend a great deal of effort and emphasis on discipling them as well because by definition they're going to end up being leaders in their churches and leaders uh, within the country and they'll be the grand old men of surgery in their particular country so we're interested in creating this uh, networking that we do short-termers are absolutely critical for what we do because uh, as a general surgeon coming from the united states uh, i didn't do prostates and c-sections and neurosurgery and so all of that sort of thing is uh, necessary so that when people come from the united states um, with their skills, then they share those skills, and uh, they're training both the missionary surgeons and the trainees at the same time, and we try often to get them kind of to connect into the local societies and help with conference and so forth. So we're trying to build competency at, at multiple levels. Uh, without short-termers, we'd be dead in the water. Uh, we need uh, anybody who knows which end of the knife is sharp, uh, plus uh, gastroenterologists and radiologists and pathologists and anesthesiology, because all of that is under the auspices of general surgery uh, in these countries. Um, and, and general surgery is really a primary care uh, issue in Africa. Uh, 10% of all the adults die, die for the lack of basic general surgery. Uh, 20% of all the kids who die, die for the lack of basic general surgery, appendicitis and typhoid and those kind of things. And so um, one of the things that we want to try to do as God provides enough resources. Again, we need to help train the family practitioners uh, to do surgical procedures, um, both missionary level and, and African level. Uh, we haven't gotten the resources to do that, but that's where we'd like to go. Uh, we're also helping, uh, we're, we're just starting to look into a program to train our graduates to train surgical technicians to help them with the common operations. And uh, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a real danger. Um, with dentistry, there's less risk if somebody pulls the wrong tooth or breaks it off or something. Uh, what we've had in surgical technology, unfortunately, is too many of them think that they're now professionals and, and unfortunately kill people on a regular basis. So, you know, how to, how to do that, uh, it's one of these things everybody keeps talking about it, how to do it safely. Uh, appropriately is is a real struggle for us but there's a tremendous need for that as we get along one of the other things that short-termers can do for us particularly is um, those uh, people that are used to working in the operating room know all the stuff about instruments and sterile fields and so forth in our situation we have surgeons teaching uh, the nurses how to do that so you can imagine it's pretty bad as a general rule and so uh, we're looking for uh, surgical uh, OR nurses to come along and help train as well. But there's a tremendous opportunity for short-term impact in a long-term environment. One of the mistakes I think that many short-term teams do, and this is across the board, is they come and do their thing as opposed to trying to facilitate what's already 
there, opening up new doors, uh, you know, strengthening uh, mission uh, ministries and so forth. This is a great opportunity to, to come alongside and uh, really make a difference. And, you know, if as I, I did a lot of short-term missions just kind of coming and going. I'd come back and I'd have my 50 slides and I would, you know, show them up and everybody would say, gee whiz, and aren't you wonderful for going and all that sort of stuff. There's a world of difference between doing 50 cases and helping somebody who will then do 500 or, or 5,000. And that's what it's all about, I think. Thank you. Jim? Thank you very much, Bruce. Okay, so uh, we'll open it up for questions. And if you don't have any questions, uh, we have some questions here. So let's uh, start, see if you have some questions. I guess somebody's got a hand up already. Um, I'm a family medicine intern, um, and I would like to do something, you know, direct or be faculty. I like the family medicine. Would you sign on this picture? God love you, and we have a wonderful time for your That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so do we. <laughs> um, in, uh, okay. Okay. You know, I, uh, I felt called to go to a residency that doesn't have a lot of surgical training. Um, and I, so I guess my question would be, um, you know, what... What is the best sort of post-residency plan? Should I, you know, is it, you know, worthwhile to just stick around my old residency for a year or two, get some experience being a faculty, do one of these sure. other fellowships, do a surgical OB fellowship here in the U.S., just kind of find a missionary doctor somewhere and have them teach me? Yeah, there's, there's a number of ways to answer that. Um, and the, the bottom line is where are you going to end up? as far as what you need. Some places you won't need surgical skills in terms of teaching general practice because the general practice model you say, for example, in Kazakhstan, very few procedures, all outpatient, no OB, etc. Whereas in Afghanistan, they do more than we do. Not only C-sections, but hysterectomies, gallbladders, uh, uh, hernia raffies, and all kinds of surgical procedures, and very sick people because there's nobody else to do it. There's no surgical backup of any quality. Uh, but in general, I would say get as much experience as you can because you don't know probably where you're going to go yet. Uh, take, you know, learn everything you can in residency, of course. Uh, get all the procedures you can and uh, learn how to teach because that's what you want to do too when you get over there, whatever level or whatever model they use. And uh, uh, experience is always good. I wouldn't encourage just hanging around the U.S. too much, and of course, unless you have a bunch of debts to pay off, and then you could try MedSend. And, uh, but be, but you, when you get to a particular place, medical... Uh, medicine, uh, it may be practiced very differently in the place you go because they won't have necessarily the resources that you get used to here. They won't have the high-tech stuff or maybe not the consultants, so you have to learn a little bit different way of practicing as a family doctor. So what you learn in the U.S. may or may not apply directly. The knowledge will be helpful, of course, and useful, but the actual way of doing it, you may have to learn in the field anyway. So get as much as you can while you're in residency, uh, maybe a little bit of teaching experience, and then go and figure it out in the field and and, uh, tailor it to the place you're going to go. Bruce, do you have any comment about that? Only, only that I get about four or five requests a month for this, and there is no program out there that's really good for this, and it's something that needs to be done. Uh, one of the real problems is is that, frankly, there's probably less than 30 missionary surgeons in the entire world. Uh, and so, you know, there's only 1,200 medical missionaries in this entire world. That's the one thing about this conference. It's nice because if you sit down, most of them will walk by you uh, at some point or another. Um, but it's a very limited uh, 
you know, number of people out there. So we're, we're struggling for an answer to this. Uh, probably your best option, if you're really serious about it, is try to, if you're lucky enough to have a mission hospital in that area that has a surgeon that isn't trying to train other people and has rooms for you to live and all the other issues, that's probably your best option, uh, doing that, um, you know, over a six-month period, something like that. But it's a real struggle, and we haven't solved that problem. I would just make a comment as well, and it kind of goes into what Charlie was saying about, I, and I wanted to ask, actually ask him this question, if he gets a lot of flack about training non-dentists to do dental procedures. Because one of the things that I have uh, gotten is, uh, like for instance, I'm an ENT, an audiologist, uh, and there's a huge need for hearing aids around the world. There are very few trained audiologists. And, but when you talk to the audiologists about trying to train a lower level to dispense hearing aids, they just go ballistic. And so uh, I think we do, and, and the argument always is, well, we have, to be, we have to do excellence. But I think that excellence changes depending on the situation. Do you want to make a comment about that, sure. Charlie? Yeah, um, I've, I've been training folks for about, uh, seven years, and there's probably a cadre of 25 dentists that are participating in that. And early on, it was, I got a lot of flack. And so, but when we do, we go and train, we have to do the follow-up research outside of ourselves to verify that this is, is in fact, a safe thing to do. And that's what we did in, in Ghana, is we did a blinded study to compare surgical outcomes to American dentists compared to guys that had been trained and the surgical outcomes indicated that we timed the procedures they it took them twice as long to do an extraction than it took us um, part of the reason is that's the way we trade them on purpose because uh, take to take a tooth out the key principle is you want to elevate and elevate and elevate and that takes longer so so the surgical outcomes were identical except for the amount of time it took them to do a procedure now uh, dry socket is a direct correlation between the amount of time it takes you to do a procedure. So they did have a higher dry socket rate, but dry sockets are self-limiting in themselves, and they eventually heal themselves. So, um, so when you go, I, I strongly believe, and we should evaluate very closely and be very critical of, okay, you're transferring skills, but can you verify that's a safe thing to do? And, uh, and, and that's what we've done. Very good. That's a good point. What I've told them is when they come along and criticize what we're doing, the answer is, you're right, why don't you come with us? And that kind of solves a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes? I'm actually one of the few uh, surgeons who thinks nurses are worthwhile. Uh, no, uh, the, the strongest uh, the strongest correlation to good patient care and to good outcome is, is the caliber of the nurses. And so there's a tremendous role in the operating room. Now, one of the problems is is I can pretty much go to any country in the United States with my MD degree and I'll get in with no problems asked. Uh, they really protect their nurses program. So a lot of nurses can't get in on short term. So that's somewhat, somewhat of a struggle uh, in, in various countries. Uh, but there's a tremendous need. As a matter of fact, I was just talking with the folks from Indiana Wesleyan this morning and from Bangalow and so forth. I want nurses to create a PACS equivalent uh, to help create 
a curriculum that's transnational rather than what we have right now is everybody's going out and inventing the wheel again. And to me, that seems silly. Uh, there's a lot of really experienced people, and I'd love to, to work on putting together a curriculum and, and then uh, going and getting involved with that so you have a deliberate time of teaching rather than just kind of making it a haphazard you know, shotgun approach to what's happening. So um, if, you, if you agree with that, go by and talk to the people at Indiana West and tell them, I understand there's going to be a new nursing, you know, and, and see if we can push them along. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just want to echo what Bruce just said. And uh, I would say that the need for nurse missionaries is as great as the need for nurse, uh, medical missionaries. Uh, in our, my experience in Central Asia and other countries, uh, there are several groups and, and uh, a number of people going out to do medical stuff. I rarely see anyone going out to teach nurses in the schools or in the hospitals or anyplace else. And uh, we have started taking nurses with us to some of the places that we go, Kazakhstan, Central Asia, Albania, Kosovo. We'd like to take them other places. Uh, and when they go, they usually get a very good response. And they, well, you know, in the medical schools, they'll have hundreds of nurses coming to classes. Or uh, in, in, in Kosovo and Albania, they, they have very large groups of people that they are given to teach. Uh, but the need is huge, and uh, the spiritual need, of course, is just as great as teaching the medical students and doctors. I mean, they need to hear the gospel, and they need their skills raised. And so if the nurses can come together, like Bruce is saying, and figure out a curriculum and a way to do this, a PAX equivalent or a, in his image, international nursing equivalent, then that would be the way, to, that would be great. That would be fantastic. I, I would just echo that, echo that as well. One of the requests that we get for MEI from overseas is, can you bring a nurse educator? Uh, because of the nursing schools and a lot of the universities that we're involved with. Yes? Oh, oh, you, uh, okay, so the, I, I, I was supposed to be repeating the question, so <laughs> the question is, what about rehab specialists? Uh, a huge need, I don't think that has been recognized. In what area are you in? Beach and Club Oh, listen, come and talk to me. I got a place for you to go. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you an example. The pediatric neurodevelopment team that I mentioned that we've done in Kenya now for two years, and it was with autistic kids, uh, cerebral palsy, and developmental delay. The team was, I mean, I'm just an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, so I gave a little talk on hearing, uh, but I had a pediatric, uh, a pediatrician who was a neurodevelopment pediatrician. But the rest of the team was speech therapy, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Last year, my daughter, who was a social worker, went. This year we had a teacher for special needs kids. And it is a huge need. And what was interesting, I just came from uh, the talk by Charles Felding, who's not Charles Felding, but who works in Muslim countries. And he, has, uh, he thinks that the best way to get into Saudi Arabia is to do uh, um, working with, with uh, uh, yeah, handicapped children. Because they have such a high incidence. I he told me it was, I think it was 20% handicapped children because they have so much consanguinity type marriages. And he feels that that would be a way to get in. Another example, since you're a speech therapist, in Kenya there are eight speech therapists for 40 million people. And so one of the things we were trying to do in this course that we taught was to give the physical therapists and the occupational therapists, which they have schools for, just give them some basic speech therapy that they could use in their practices. So, yes, please come and talk to me. There is no skill that you have that God can't use. Uh, there's no skill that you have that God needs. 
but there's no skill that he can't use. And so one of the one of the real issues is that virtually all of these things have physical therapy and occupational therapy, and you know I mean, you just go on down the list. They're all needed. The only thing is you have to be careful about setting your level of expectation because you'll be coming in and you'll be starting literally from scratch. And so the kinds of resources and other things, you know, that's the biggest issue. I've got this wonderful idea for this country, and you realize there's absolutely no infrastructure and it takes you about eight times longer than you expect. Uh, but if God has called you, please don't stay home. Well, if there were any of them out there doing it, we would be glad to have them talk. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's so a big ne- problem. They're not out there. That is a big problem. Next year, we'll have you give a talk here on speech therapy. Because yeah. I actually went to the one yesterday on uh, physical therapy, which was very good. But absolutely, those paramedical uh, uh, fields are much needed and a lot of times aren't recognized. Just a quick comment on that. Uh, uh, I think you have to be willing to be the door opener. You have to be willing to take the initiative. And when we started doing it, there was no one else doing it. I mean, at least where we were going. I mean, in Africa, there was a lot of general practice training and all that, but not where we were going. And we had to even figure out who to meet. And once we started going through the doors, others would introduce themselves to us and say, can you come to our medical school and do the same thing? And it just went from there. But you have to be willing to, to take the step. And, and then, like Bruce said, uh, expect it to take longer than you think, but and just keep going back or stay as a long-termer and uh, help them develop it. Because physical therapy, occupational therapy, dentistry, all these other specialties and, and uh, medical services are desperately needed. Psychiatry and psychology, huge area, behavioral medicine that's not touched on by most of these countries. And it's not that they don't have psychiatric disease or conditions. They're just not addressing them. They're just ignoring it, and people suffer in silence. And, uh, but there's a less than a handful of missionaries in any one of those fields. Right. So if you go as a speech therapist, you'll be one of the pioneers. You can start a new school in Kenya. Okay. <laughs> there is a therapy meeting in here at 11, and we, we meet every year, so anybody's interested. Okay. Okay, very good. John? I'd like to echo what Bruce said, which is any of the kind of skills that the Lester managed. A young man woke up to us and said, apologetically, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a surgeon, but I'd really like to go do missions work. And I said, really, what do you do? And he said, I'm an electronics uh, repair technician. (laughs) 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 These guys laugh because every place we go, there's desperate need for somebody to do that. Yeah. I didn't think there was any place for him, and I said, write your ticket. Where do you want to go? Yeah. Well, you know, that's the other thing we've been finding in MEI, that, you know, a lot of people, particularly at medical schools, that are in, you know, some little narrow niche of research or <laughs> teach basic science, they say, well, there's no place in the mission field for me. But we're getting more and more requests from the medical schools that we go to, like in Mongolia and Kazakhstan, for people who, who do teach basic sciences and who do do research. You know, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, they, their graduate students have to do research projects and they, they need help on how to just set up a research project. Jim, could you also mention a little bit about teaching pedagogy? You, you, I, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> teaching, teaching. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Teaching how to, how to teach. Teaching how to teach. And, and that's a big need, too. If, uh, uh, most of the places we go, it's a very uh, old-style teaching. I lecture, you listen, you write it down, and then I test, you give it back to me. It's not a good learning uh, technique for adult edu- uh, learners. Uh, they need hands-on. They need to be able to ask questions. And we, so we do that in China. All the places we go, we teach the faculty how to be good faculty members. So that they can, and it doesn't matter their specialty. You know, we have, since in family medicine, we have a lot of different specialties involved because we're trained so broadly. 
So we will teach them how to teach, and that's a, a critical thing. And it's a, it can be a, a worldview-changing thing where the culture is you don't ask questions. You know, if I ask in China, if I ask a question, it's beginning to change, but it, it implies that you didn't do a good job of teaching. Or in, in Kazakhstan, if I ask the professor a question, it's a challenge to them. You know, I don't agree with you. Uh, so there are cultural uh Factors that you have to take into account, but they can be overcome when the when the faculty themselves understand this is how adults learn, this is how it works, and they can see from their own experience the negative experiences uh, uh, from their own training that it would have been better if they could have asked a few questions and had some experience before practicing. We had, in, in that regard, we were teaching in Kenya this uh, how to teach a, ACLS or ATLS or whatever, I forgot what it was and so forth. But it was kind of fascinating because we started it, but we taught them the way we wanted them to learn how to teach them. And by the end of the uh, day, these professors who were classic, you know, stand up and lecture and memorize what I tell you and shut up, um, were just fascinated because they had never seen it modeled. And so they wanted to, they really got enthused. So teaching, teaching is a critical aspect. You know what, this is such a powerful thing and this is really uh, how people catch the gospel. Because when you start to model the way Jesus taught, it, it really impacts people hugely. So it's very important. Yeah, I, I, yeah the, I was just going to make a comment. One of the things that we've been hearing at this conference is, I think more and more, both in secular and in Christian uh, short-term trips, people are realizing the importance of education and training. Uh, but then I think the second step is that we can train them to do something, but I've heard several times at this conference is the next step is to train them to train people, and that's the next move. On the CMDA website, if you go there, and I can't remember where it is, but you search for it under the PRISM, P-R-I-S-M, survey. Uh, that is a survey that was just done of approximately half the medical missionaries in this world and uh, talking about what was important and where they think medical missions is going and so forth. Their point was that medical missions is the best opportunity to get into any closed country and, number two, that education was where the most important things were going. So I think there's a, a real emphasis uh, realizing that uh, they may hate Americans, but the one thing that we do do is educate pretty well and... Uh, that helps us open some doors. So that PRISM study is worth your, your review just to see kind of where medical missions is and where it's going. Wayne? Um, as you mentioned, that, um, many of these countries are trying to um, establish their primary care infrastructure and primary care training infrastructure. Um, what, from your perspective, what's the state of pediatric training? Is it a specialty training? And they're well established with the idea of this image equivalent to pediatric. I, I think I think in most countries pediatrics is a, a clearly recognized specialty, and so it, it has fit into the whether it's China, Russia, or Central Asia, it has fit into their model of medical care, internal medicine, pediatric surgery, whatever, and so it's not as big a um, problem for them to understand the need, and, and, and uh, so. It's not as groundbreaking either. It's, it's not like you're starting to start from scratch like we are in family medicine in many countries. But there's always a need to elevate the level of care. I know in Kazakhstan, uh, I, I believe they're still doing it, but a couple of years ago they were searching Europe and America for people to come over in all the different specialties for a year or two and work with their specialty colleagues to try to raise the level of care, what they would say, to international standards. And pediatrics was among them, among the things they were looking for. Uh, so again, like Bruce and, and uh, Charlie have said, anything is worthwhile. Anything is valuable. God can use it all. You just connect with your colleagues, and you're going to have a relationship that will go on for years if you want to. Even hematology, oncology, and pediatrics. Yeah. I happen to know that's what we. So we've got time. We're actually almost out of time. There were a couple more questions. Just quick. 
and then we'll be well, glad to stay around because there's nothing following in this room. So somebody back here had a question. Oh, okay. Sorry. Well, I'll give you my bias, and then if anybody else wants to make a comment. I, I think, oh, I'm sorry. So the question was, if you're a student, right, yeah. what's the be- best preparation to do some kind of teaching or training overseas? My bias is that, particularly in Asia and even more so, and even now some in Africa, more and more it's important that you have credentials. And so I would encourage you to look at doing a residency, whatever you know you feel called to do, and get whatever credentials you can with that. Try to do opportunities for teaching, and and consider doing a faculty position once you've finished to get yourself some credentials. Uh, you know, even if it's uh, one or two years on a faculty, and you know, doing a couple research projects, doing some teaching, uh, and then also you know, join some short-term mission uh, teams. Okay? Does that answer your question? Okay. Uh, if there's one more burning question, we'll take it. Otherwise, we will finish. Okay. Yes, sir. Do you have any trouble, um, let's say you train an indigenous uh, physician, keeping them with the mission focus and not leaving for the big bucks? Bruce, oh, okay. So Bruce and Chris can both answer I think that. we probably have the same answer. Uh, one of the problems we've had is uh, the, the people we work with often speak good English. And... Uh, use their connections with us to find a way to go to UK or Australia or US and uh, they, they're lost to their country. It's part of the brain drain. And uh, although everyone has the right to go where they want, we don't want to further the brain drain. So we try to train on site and uh, 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 train them where they are to minimize the temptation to leave their country and leave and take their skills with them and practice here or somewhere else. So uh, it is a challenge, uh, and it, I think a year or two ago, one of the African speakers uh, talked about 30,000 doctors a year leaving Africa and going to other countries where the pay is better and all that, which is great for them and their families, but it's a tremendous loss for their countries and, and the investment their governments put into them to train them in these medical schools and whatever other levels they had. So it's something that needs to be addressed and uh, try to uh, equip them where they are so they can catch a vision for serving their own people and not feel like they've got to go somewhere else. In our situation, where we refuse to train them outside of, of Africa. Uh, our accreditation is some of the highest ex- accepted in Africa, but it's not accepted generally outside of Africa. It is a little bit in the Middle East or something. So we are not trying to get them at the same levels so they, so they can leave. But, but the real answer is it's discipling. It's when their worldview is that they are serving the Lord God where they are intended to go. That's the difference. And so much so that our guys are often, we have some of our graduates that are making $200 a month right now. If they even went to their own city, they'd make 10 times that much. But they are answering God's call on their life. Occasionally we lose a few. Sometimes discipling doesn't stick. But that's, that, I think, is the critical answer. Okay, I think we need to finish up. And I want to thank all of you for coming and thank the panel for their participation.